we are in the middle of a series. We're going through the book of First John, and this morning we're going to look at a text in chapter three. And uh, before I, I dive in and read and pray for our time, one of the things that we like to do here at New City is answer any questions that you may have about Christianity, about the Christian faith, about what it means to follow Jesus even, uh, or even just questions that you have about the text. So I'll spend five to seven minutes after the service to answer those questions. My number is up there on the screen, and it's at the top of page eight in your bulletin. Feel free to, to text those questions in. So this morning, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me take a moment and pray for our time this morning. Well, Father, as it is uh, every single day, Lord, we need you. We need the goodness of the gospel Even before we're a Christian, we need the goodness of the gospel during the Christian life. And this morning, Lord, Jesus, we need you. We ask that you would guide our time this morning. We ask that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures and open our hearts so that we might understand the beauty of the good news, the beauty of Jesus. And Father, even this morning as we come to this text... Lord, I realize that some of us are not okay. We are are not okay. We've not had a good week. We are struggling with sin. We feel defeated. We feel despair in our lives. We feel like failures. And Father, you invite us to come and lean into your word. The promise, Lord, that you bring us is rest. For that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And that we might have rest for our weary souls. So God, meet us in these moments this morning in your name. Amen. Well, One of the first questions we ask when a baby is born is, who do they look like? We look at their eyes, we look at their nose, we look at their mouth, and like, who do they look like? And as the child grows, people will say say stuff like, you know, this, this child is looking more and more like his dad. Or this child completely has his mother's personality. And while not every child is an exact 
one-to-one copy of their parent, we would openly admit that it is unusual if there is not something that the child reflects, either the parent's physical, emotional, or even moral makeup, that it is unusual for a child not to reflect one of those things in their upbringing. And we know in many instances, children who grow up with loving and nurturing parents, they want to be like mom and dad. They want to be like their mom. They want to be like their dad. And from a young age, they want to do the stuff that their parents do. They want to tag along. They want to help. They're, they're curious and they, they crave instruction for how they ought to navigate and live in the world. And here in chapter 3, the Apostle John, he's, he's talking about these family values, these family values for the people of God. That the people who have been born of God have an entirely new system of values. That we have a new upbringing. So we ask questions like, do we love what the Father loves? Do we mourn and lament the things that the Father mourns and laments? Do we hate the things that the Father hates? Do we reflect his values into this world? And yet we know that the burden... To live like this, the burden to live out these family values, it doesn't, it doesn't come, that doesn't happen without some opposition, without blood, sweat, and tears. There's this, this war within, there's this friction along the way that we struggle with sin, that sin is crouching at the door, seeking to overrule us, seeking to leave us away with its it's, it's shallow and empty promises. So there's opposition from within, but then there's also opposition out there, out here in the world. And this is the opposition that John is talking about here this morning. And the Bible talks about over and over again about how the church has an enemy. How the devil opposes to the building of God's church. And yet we know We know that it is promised in Matthew 16, verse 18, that Jesus will build his church. Jesus will build his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail or overcome it. And now I know that anytime the church today discusses these topics of heaven and hell and good and evil and God and the devil, that it's a a tough topic for for people to follow, that it is, it is tough for some of us to believe that God exists. It is tough for some of us to believe that in, in, in the devil. And I just, I just want to say we acknowledge that you might feel that way and that here at New City, none of us are going to be surprised if this is a difficult thing for you to grasp. Like, none of us are going to be surprised in, in the slightest. I'm not going to be surprised in the slightest if, if this passage that talks about the devil is going to be a, a, a difficult thing for you to grasp. It's not going to surprise me by any means. Right? You're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, can I really adhere to a faith, a religion that affirms the existence of a God and affirms the existence of a devil? And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I I do think it is really important. I just want to paint us a picture here this morning. 
you know, that this this topic about good and evil, God and the devil, it wasn't always difficult. We didn't always think like this. We didn't always kind of treat this with suspicion and, and skepticism. It wasn't always like that. But but today, the, the supernatural and the miraculous are, are difficult topics of conversation. And one of the reasons that the supernatural has been just rejected or treated with great skepticism is because stick with me, is because of this movement in the 18th century called the Enlightenment. It was this intellectual movement that originated in Europe, and it was this, this movement that I, I believe has, has shaped us in the church more than we realize today. And this was this movement that was also called this, the Age of Reason. And it emphasized stuff like verifying the facts and applying logic and, and scrutinizing, it really valued scrutinizing traditionally held beliefs. That as you discovered new information, you could scrutinize tradition. You could scrutinize traditionally held beliefs. And obviously, obviously, in many ways, with all of these, you know, intellectual movements that have happened, that there are good things, there are things to affirm about it. That this, this, this movement, it, it bore good fruit. Many of us apply reason and logic in our professions each day. So there's a lot of things to affirm about that. But in my opinion, one of the critiques, in my opinion, is that it just completely snuffed out any room for table topics like God and the devil, like good and evil. It completely just kind of pushed them to the side because it didn't fit in these rational, logical categories. So if you're here this morning and you find it tough to believe in the supernatural and the miraculous, right, my question to you is, is could you be a product of the Enlightenment more than you think? Certainly with all these intellectual movements, they're things, like I said, to affirm, but also things to be aware of, of how they shape us, how they shape us. So that's my, my question for, for you this morning, is are you a, a little bit of a, a product of the Enlightenment a little bit more than, than you think? Is your, is your skepticism costing you something? Are you, are you missing out on something because of your skepticism? And that's my question, because coming to a text like this that, that affirms the existence of, of the devil, and it says that he opposes God's people. And when it says that he opposes God's people, when the scriptures talk about how we have an enemy, opposition isn't, doesn't quite do it justice to explain the type of warfare that exists because it's not just this mild-mannered opposition it's it's that it's it's warfare it's this this regime of the enemy that wants to just dismantle the church brick by brick and that sounds intimidating that sounds scary that sounds like we don't want that to happen and we'll get to this in just a second and why we see that we do not need to fear. And even John addresses this in chapter 4. So we'll get to that in a second. I know that that sounds intimidating. And now, some of you have, have heard this quote before, um, but the famous C.S. Lewis was this, uh, he wrote in, in, in the 50s, you know, it was this British uh, apologist that had this radio talk show that addressed kind of questions of, of skepticism. And he said this, that on 
uh, on the church's opposition. He said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, not our face, but our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence, to disbelieve in their existence, excuse me, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So while the scriptures uh, affirm the existence of an enemy, they also, and this is where John is, is taking us by the hand, while the, while the scriptures affirm the existence of an enemy, they also emphasize here that Christ is a victor, that Christ is victorious, that Christ has earned a decisive victory over the devil, over sin, and over death itself. Christ is a victor. And to use this Latin expression that, you know, no one really talks like this anymore, but, but Jesus is our Christus victor. Now, I don't know how you can say that out loud and not just get a little excited, right? Say it with me. Jesus is our Christus victor. Good, good work. Good work. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. Uh, so, so here is what that means. Here is what that means for us, is that Jesus is victorious and he is he has taken away our sin for those that are in Christ. He has taken it away, and Jesus has destroyed the work of the devil. So first, Jesus has taken away our sins. In verse 5, this is what it says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Well, well what does this mean? We, we, we use expressions a lot like this in church, that Jesus has died for our sins, that Jesus has, has taken away our sins. But what does this actually mean? Now, let me, let me explain. Uh, what I believe separates a, a good drama from a great drama, whether it's movies or literature, is this ability for the author or filmmaker to, to capture some of, most, of life's most intense circumstances or emotions to the point to where you're like sitting there or you're reading the novel and you're like, I, I feel this, right? I am, I am moved by this. I am shaped by this. And especially any good story has conflict and tension. And for instance, there could be conflict that happens between two characters and there's this moment, right, where you are just cheering on the main character, where you're cheering on the protagonist, that you want him to succeed, that you that you want her to do what she needs to do. And then the protagonist gets this blame that is just thrusted upon them. This blame for something they didn't do, this blame for something that someone else did just gets thrusted upon them. And we would look at a situation like that, and we would say that this, the protagonist has been made a scapegoat. They've been made a scapegoat. And, you know, when you're, like, sitting there, when this happens, you're just, you know, watching the movie, or you're, you know, reading the page, and you're like, no, like, no, it should, that's not right. They don't, they don't deserve that. This character is innocent, and in the Old Testament, this would happen. The people of God quite literally had a scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, the priest Aaron is commanded to take one goat 
and to slaughter it for the purification of people's sins, and then to take that blood and sprinkle it, signifying a cleansing, a removal of sin, that sin is costly, that sin requires sacrifice. So Aaron would would take this sin on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, and he would sacrifice this goat. That was the first goat. And then he would take the second goat, and what Aaron was instructed to do by the Lord was to place both his hands on the goat. He would come up to the goat and place both his hands on the goat. And then he would confess the sins of the people onto the goat. Symbolizing this this transfer of sin onto this animal. And then after that, Aaron Aaron would free the goat so that it it would go. It would be released into the wilderness to never return. That the people would be separated from their sins. And when we, and of course, this is a, a foreshadow of what is to come. It's a foreshadow of what is to come. In Leviticus 16, it points forward to the New Testament in many ways. When we read through the, the gospel accounts, when we read through the, the portions of the story leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, at least sometimes when we read these portions of scripture, when we come to the crucifixion, at least sometimes in our minds and our hearts, we should, we should want to react like, like, no, Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve this. He was without sin. And in in many ways, in this way, the scriptures paint Jesus as our scapegoat, that he has taken the blame for something that he didn't do. So when John talks about Christ, the work of Christ taking away our sin, it means that Jesus, he took the blame. He took the punishment that our blame became his. So that's what John is saying here. He's, of course, not speaking, and what he's not saying here in verse 5 is that, that it is possible for those that are in Christ to live a life without sin. He's not saying that. And in 1 John 1, 8, he, he says just that, that if we say we have no sin in us, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But what it does mean when John says that Jesus has taken away our sin, it means that Jesus, he took the blame so that we could be free. He took the blame so that we could be free from from the guiltiness of sin, that we no longer stand condemned by our sin. He took the punishment for our sin, that God's wrath for our sin was poured out on the scapegoat, was poured out on Jesus. So Jesus, he came to take away our sin. And then secondly, he came to destroy the works of the devil. In uh, verse 8, let me read this for us. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here we go. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And now, what is meant here by works is that The devil has spoiled, that the devil has spoiled and seeks to spoil God's creation. The devil seeks to bring ruin upon it 
And the theologian John Stott says, says this, morally, and it's not, it's not on the screen, so just, just kind of listen. Uh, so John Stott says that morally, the devil's work is enticement to sin. The devil entices us to sin. He lures us away from the beauty of Christ. So morally, morally, the devil's work is enticement to sin. Physically, the infliction of disease. Intellectually, the seduction into error. The devil assaults our soul, our body, and our mind. And yet Christ came to destroy his works. And here's, here's what's interesting to me about this word destroy and just kind of reading through it in the original language, language, it it really helped me to understand. Because I I read the word destroy and I think to myself, utter annihilation, right? Destroy, utter annihilation. And yet, we need to remind ourselves where we're at in the story. We need to remind ourselves that there will be a day, that the day will come in which Satan will be defeated. Revelation 20. There will be a day where death experiences death. Right? That that will come. That's the promise of where the story is heading. But not yet. Not yet. And this is what John is, is communicating here. Is that in the present, Jesus, he's come to undo evil. He's come to undo it. He's come to undo anyone or anything that is bound. And as he does this, as he is undoing evil in our lives, as he is undoing evil in God's creation in the world, Jesus, he demonstrates that he stands triumphant over evil. That he is a Christus victor. He is our Christus victor. That he triumphs over evil and he puts the devil to shame. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Colossians chapter 2. It says that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now here's, here's a way to, to understand that. Uh, upon conquering another territory the romans they would throw this lavish parade in which the roman arm, army would march just showing showing off their their defeated foes and any spoils that they've captured and people right are on the sides of this processional and it was this big festive celebration and people were cheer and they were excited and often in that processional if the the defeated king if he was indeed captured he would walk out in front of the chariot. He would walk out in front of the chariot, the chariot carrying the Roman general who just brought victory to the Roman colony. And this defeated king would walk out in front in a way just openly shamed, just jeered at, just mocked, just scorned. And the Roman general would would ride along in this chariot just dressed to the nines, right, and all his swag. And the Roman army would follow the chariot and they would yell stuff like, Hail, triumphant one. Hail, triumphant one. That the general has brought victory to the people. 
And F.F. Bruce, he's this, this commentator that says this. He says, God parades the devil. God parades the devil to make plain to all the magnitude of victory that the devil's period of rule is finished. He's not seen as, the devil's not seen as gladly surrendering, but submitting against his will to a power that he cannot resist. The devil has been pacified, overcome, yet not finally destroyed. He continues to exist, opposed to man and his interests, but he cannot finally harm the person who is in Christ. The devil's ultimate overthrow, although in the future, is sure and certain. And this is, this is what Jesus does when he destroys the works of the devil, when he triumphs over them, when he puts them to shame. That this is how he shames the devil. That Jesus is our Christus victor in, in this way. And what this means is that we should, be, we should be people who love a good parade. We should be people who, who love a processional. Now, if you don't like parades, right, myself as an introvert, I, I understand that. There's just something about the crowds and the sunburns and waiting in line at the porta potty that just is like, mm, pass, you know. Uh, but, but this processional, this processional is something that I can get excited about. That this processional is something for us to be, to be lovers of. That God, he parades over the devil. That Christ leads us in victory. That he has disarmed the enemy. That he has taken away our sin. That he is undoing evil. And that he ultimately and finally overthrows our enemy. So for those of us who are in Christ, that we are, we are parade participants we are parade participants. We, we follow Jesus as he leads us in his victorious processional. So what now? What, what now? Let's kind of talk about kind of landing the plane and application. What now? And, and part, of, part of what I love about this text is that I think in some sense, the Apostle John here is calling us to be before he calls us to do. He's calling us to be before he calls us to do. And I understand that the, this sounds a little strange. Like, how, what does it mean that we're, we're called to, to be? What does that exactly mean? But uh, in keeping with this theme of Christus Victor, I, I found this metaphor helpful. There was this insecure little duckling. And that was supposed to be funny, but that's okay. Uh <laughs> There was this insecure little duckling, and there's a, a Scottish pastor that, that told this story. So this isn't my story, this is his, but I, so I don't have the cool accent. But there was this, this insecure little duckling, and this little duckling, he was mixing in with all of the other birds. And this isn't cool, but the little duckling was getting made fun of because he had... These, these, these stubby brown little feathers that just stuck out and he just looked less polished than all of the other birds. He was made fun of and this would, this would happen. And yet one day, one day, this little duckling looked down and he began to see that he was no longer had these, these, these ugly feathers that stuck out and were 
not looking good, but he no longer had those. He had this, he was dressed in these, this array of white, beautiful feathers that he was actually a swan. So he exclaimed, I'm a swan, I'm a swan. And the real difference in how he lived came when he saw what he really was. It was this recognition of a true identity. That was where the real difference came in how he lived. It was this recognition of what he really was. And how many of us, right, myself included, attempt to live this Christian life, attempt to live out and practice righteousness, to to live out the family values of the people of God. How many of us attempt to do that, and yet all the time we are despairing over our sin? We are despairing over our failures, not lamenting and mourning, but just despairing over them. And in these moments, I believe that our greatest need, it's not for us to do, but it's for us to to look back to see what Christ has already done. That in these moments of just despairing over our sin, our greatest need isn't first for us to do, that will come, but it's to look back to see what Christ has already done for us, how he has taken away our sins, how we are processional participants in which God parades on the devil. So John's call to be here in this text means that we, we come to understand and come to terms with that as a Christian, you are born of God, that you've experienced a new birth, that you've exper- you are experiencing these new desires, a, a reorientation to love God, that this is what this, this new birth encompasses. And for the person born of God, this means that this, this practice of sinning that John is talking about, it's not, John, so when John says this practice of sinning, he's not talking about those who struggle with sin. He's not talking about those who struggle to walk in the light, yet that they confess their sins and they're endeavoring by God's grace to walk in the light. He's not, he's not talking about those people. When John says those that make a practice of sinning, he's talking about those that make ongoing, blatant disregard for sin. That's what he's talking about. And he says here that, that this that for the Christian born of God to do this, to make this practice of sin, it's utterly incompatible with the Christian life. This is what John is saying at the end of the text in verse 9, that it is incompatible for the person born of God to do this, to live this way. Because the person born of God, like this young child that wants to be like mom, like this young child that wants to be like their dad, the Christian, when we look back and we see Jesus as our Christus Victor, when we look back and see the kind of love that the Father has lavished on us, we begin to see the beauty of embracing the family values. We begin to see the beauty of practicing righteousness. When we look back and see that Jesus is our Christus Victor, we begin to see the beauty of embracing the, the values of the people of God, how that makes a difference for our neighbors. We begin to, to bear fruit for the sake of another. We are given different gifts 
to serve for the sake of another. It completely just reorients us to embracing the family values. Let's pray.